Greetings from the North, citizens of Earth, welcome. Today we continue the vast story we've already devoted many shows to in a series called From Solomon's Temple to Arcadia. And we specifically zoom in on the incredible part concerning Henry Sinclair, Earl of Scotland and Jarl of Norwegian Orkneys. Not only is he a much underrated interesting character of history, But now that his journals have been found, he rises to topple historic giants like Columbus. But before getting to their astonishing contents, let me be the first to point out that these journals do not have a clean provenance. Indeed, as most things in nature, they just have the audacity to exist, oblivious of academic criteria or acceptance. But even if they by some miracle avoided the fate of most such documents, like being tossed out, burned, overlooked, seized and confiscated and in a private collection, rot in a storage basement or attic, etc, 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 they would still have a hard time making it into official history books just because they threaten the established official consensus paradigm. At the very best, it would take a couple of generations Just look at the Zeno narrative. It's dismissed simply because it's too fantastic to be accepted. If you thought Wikipedia was a biased, controlled nest of anal retentive pedants adhering to ideology above truth, this was always true for the academic world, more so now than ever before. Now, truth seekers fortunately do not have to wait for that slow oil tanker to turn around. We have access to them today and can handle their contents. Because, as a rare exception of history, they fortunately fell into the right hands who wants to see them made public. Also, as we point out in the show, there are still ways to authenticate them so that we can rule out fabrication. Nevertheless, most will judge them too good to be true, thereby ignoring the fact that truth is more fantastic than fiction. Occam's razor says they are real, but there's always the odd chance out which occasionally disprove the simplest explanation. However, the default starting position shouldn't be to presume they are false but to let the different type of proof decide. So far, it's past the filters of internal evidence, carbon dating and contextual indications, and now pending hard ground excavations that can seal the case. So this shouldn't be an exercise in opinionating infantile needs to immediately make up our minds. It's incredibly boring if everyone and their mother declare whether they believe it or not, when truth is, no one knows. Only fools pass judgment while thinking themselves wise in their ignorance. The wise remain silent about their ignorance. To me, so long as there's a chance for them to be real, it's much more interesting to explore the contents, context and discuss these matters, because this all existed before these journals emerged to strengthen the case. Besides, it is ungrateful and insensitive to stigmatize for fabrication, today's guest or anyone else involved in bringing them to public awareness, when in fact these actions deserve kudos. 
Suspiciousness and pseudo-skepticism has no doubt been a concern reinforced by our guest's long life within academia, so she deserves the respect of not having unfounded accusations thrown her way, when she not only plays a crucial part in their discovery, and also has spent countless hours sweating over their translation as well as researching their context and presenting commentary to substantiate and provide the background, but also having the wits to cooperate with people who will see them available to the public, like another guest of this show, Scott Walter. Obviously, even our guest has struggled with the question of their genuinity, and it probably didn't help when people at first ignored or mocked it and met closed doors everywhere. After having tried contacting everyone in this field, including the Oak Island people, she finally got the air of Scott and let him inspect the journals firsthand. They were photocopied and Scott also picked three original pages and the lampskin map which he brought with him for examination. Fortunately, because something then happened which will annoy many of you. After he initially expressed doubt that she interpreted as rejection, she threw them away in a fit of frustration, traumatized by forgers whose association she desires to avoid, as well she should to protect her academic credentials. And after having spent several years on what she herself feared would be on authentic pieces, there was not much left to show for it. Fortunately, Scott's samples survives, as well as the photocopies of the rest of the journals and her own translations, which are now being released. So let's hear what these transcriptions actually contain. The very journals of Earl Henry Sinclair and his descendants span more than 800 years in 20 books, found by accident in 05 in a musty, dirty basement in Greenville, laying in a trunk in the back of a closet for almost nine more years before realizing what she had and its ramifications while translating from Latin and Old English. The story of a voyage of discovery with covenant made between the Sinclair and Weems families, the Templars, Native Americans and Freemasons, and treasures in the form of ancient documents, sacred artifacts and material assets, which they vowed to secure and protect after having been secreted from New Rochelle when the Templars were outlawed. It details the voyages to America, the crew, ships, the people brought with them and the cargo they carried. They passed these secrets along to the descendants who shared their Templar law with their passing generations and to how it was even involved in financing the American Revolutionary War and the individuals who played such an important part in the history of this burgeoning nation. Book one, which our show today deals with, tells the story of Henry as a young boy until he, as a mature man, plans a voyage with Captain Nicola Sino to Greenland and beyond. And the names, places and events mentioned have been carefully vetted by August and others to make certain they speak the actual facts. And now, finally, let's get to know her. Dr. Diana Sean Muir became a professional genealogist at age 18 and has done genealogy and one-name studies for more than 45 years. She's a 20-year veteran of the Army Reserves, 
with over 15 years in online learning, which is one of her specialities, and 30 years teaching in traditional classroom at middle school, high school and college level. She first took music education at Drake University in Des Moines from 72 to 73. From 73 to 75, she went on to Brigham Young University for music education, history and associate degree in genealogy. From 84 to 85, she took master's in sociology at Eastern Montana College. Between 86 and 87, master in future studies at University of Houston. From 87 to 88, master's in international studies at the University of Denver. Between 89 and 91, B.A. in History and Sociology at Columbia College. Between 93 and 94, an associate in paralegal studies at Kirkwood Community College and eventually did her first Ph.D. program in Sociology and Education between 98 and 2000 at the University of Iowa. In 02, she did the certification program for online learning, technology and social change at postgraduate level at University of Wisconsin. And finally, this year, completed a PhD program in anthropology at University of Iowa. She has participated in distance education certificate program at the University of Wisconsin in a postgraduate program in education at Harvard University, is a certificate expert in distance learning by EMAP of the United Nations and was named Global Educator of the Year in 2010 by CCLP. She holds several special licenses, a LPN license based on military training and experience, music education K-12, computer education, L7 educational leadership and curriculum implementation license, AP World History Certification, AP Human Geography Certification, and as accredited genealogist for the Mormon Church. Diana has published more than 45 genealogical books for different individual families, as well as her own, and issued at least two papers each year, been published in sociological and educational journals around the world, and at conventions such as the World Future Society in Washington, the Distance Learning Conference in Moscow, and at the Conference for International Distance Education in Johannesburg. Her current research projects include transcribing and translating the journals of Henry Sinclair and 15 generations of his descendants. Muir is multilingual and speaks Spanish, Russian, Arabic and Mandarin Chinese. Currently she is a member of Mensa, of Georgia State Defense Force, board member of Asian American Crown Academy, on the advisory board of Lifeboat Foundation, chairman of the board of Global American International Academy, registered specialist in the education registry for UNESCO and the United Nations, a reservist in US Army since she was honorable discharged in 92, and is founder and director of the board at Hawkins Institute, where she also serves as chief education officer. Indeed, her work experience shows a lifelong dedication to the field of education. Between 92 and 99, she was CEO of the Iowa Digital Education Association. Between 99 and 08, she was Director of Curriculum Development at AMDG Online Learning. Between 2000 and 09, she was owner and operator of Personal Learning Center International. And in 09, she created World Virtual School, later One World School, where she's currently owner and operator, serving students in 72 countries. 
Diana is one of the original creators of the world gen web and is considered a pioneer in the field of online education. Much of her career has been devoted to international non-profit educational programs as an expert in equitable quality basic education accessible to the underprivileged who otherwise would have no access in the global economic and social environment due to cultural or economic conditions. Walking the talk, she each year hosts two foreign exchange students from different countries and recently donated more than $50,000 worth of courseware to tsunami victims. Welcome to the show, Diana. Hi, Al. Hi, it's so nice to, to talk with you. Not a problem. I predict, Diana, that this show will be popular and that your books will sell like warm bread, as they said in the old <laughs> days. Bread doesn't sell that much anymore, but... <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. We haven't done a whole lot of publicity yet. I know. So I feel privileged to be one of the first to give it a shout out. Not a problem. But a couple of things, just to be sure, you, you are a doctor, right? Yes, I am. Mm. In uh, what what was it in uh, linguistics? Educational, educational leadership. Okay. Mm. I was a school superintendent. Right, right. Did you manage to hear any of the shows before we? I I did listen to the one that you did with Scott. Okay, that's great. Then you know what we've. That, that's the only where we have mentioned directly or gone into the journals. I did mention it briefly in a couple of other shows, but. Uh huh. But uh, this one with Scott, we actually did something. So well, you were the first person that's asked me about them. Yeah, and the weird thing is, I found you immediately after I talked with Scott. <laughs> but Scott said uh, we'll do a follow-up soon, and then he's been too busy. So I just figured, okay, while I'm waiting for the follow-up with him, why not just go to you? Because I saw the journals were published. And he, I talked to him about it, and he said that you were a really great guy, and to go ahead and talk to you. And <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm vetted. That's good. In to fact, know. he just texted me about 30 <laughs> seconds ago. <laughs> right. Now, we, we really hit it off, me and Scott. That was great. Yeah, he's Okay. And the show is uh, uh, getting pretty popular. So now you know the background. So I was thinking in the same line as you. I was thinking we could go through these entries that you've chosen. Okay. And then for the second book, I think the most important thing is the, is the well, I'll read the bacon quotes and also the uh, Catherine. Is that what they call the ship? Yes, the Catherine. Yeah. Yeah. So that's going to be interesting. But before we do those two things, I'm going to ask you also about the um, uh, origins of it okay. uh, and go go through and also let people know that they're still being vetted. Oh, yes. So that, right, so you just do all the disclaimers because they will come, obviously, all the attacks will come based on that. So if we disclaim it from the outset, they can relax and just enjoy the contents. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Of course, uh, the more I go into this material, the more I realize what history shattering stuff we're dealing with. And that's why I think as soon as enough people are aware, I think it will become. But of course, if they become falsified meanwhile, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe not. But then then just release them as fiction. <laughs> it should sell just as much because it's a great story. Oh, absolutely. And people have heard y- your background. They are already familiar with the journals. 
they know about Scott. Okay. But I think we should start at the end where we go into their origin, because you're not just a translator. You, as I understand it, involved in the origins of this. So could we start there? Sure. See how how did you become aware of of these incredible pieces of documents? Well, I've been doing genealogy, my own genealogy, for many many years. And I was in Greene County, Tennessee, working on my family, which was the Weems family. And it turned out, after 20 years of doing the Weems, I finally realized that they were related to the Sinclairs. Mm-hmm. And as I was, I actually went to Greene County one weekend, I think it was Mother's Day in 2005. And while I was at the library, I asked the gentleman there, I said, do you have anything else for the name Weems. And he said, well, there's a trunk downstairs that was pulled out of burning church, which has a bag in it that says property of John Weems. <laughs> and he said, <laughs> he said, we have never even indexed it because it smells so bad. <laughs> right, right. But he said, if you want to take it and look through it, just let us know if you find anything important. So he took me downstairs, and we pulled out this um, old leather saddlebag. It's not a saddlebag like you would think. It's long and round. Mm -hmm. And when we opened it, it was full of journals, old books, and a map. And they were like handwritten, right? Not printed. They were all handwritten, and the ones on the top were in Latin, and I couldn't read it. I only recognized one name, which was Henrika Sinclair, and I just figured, well, I'll figure it out later. So I took them home with me, and being busy like I was with the online school, I put them in the back of the closet, and five years later, when I came home to Illinois, I packed them in the car and brought them with me. Hang on. At this point, uh, you were first in the library. Did you take everything that was in the bag? I took the entire bag. It had never been indexed. They didn't know what was in it. They had no idea. They weren't about to do that. It had actually been there since 1880. Wow. Did they know you already? Like, were you a customer? No, but I'd been there several times. And so they knew that I was a professional and that I was working on the family. I had actually been up to the Weems Cemetery before the library opened that day. Mm. And... um, found out that the church that it had been taken out of had burned down in 1882, I think. Ah, okay, 1882. And the man who was the minister at the time was John Granzer Weems, who was like a great-grandson of John Weems. Right. Who died in 1812, and these had belonged to him. He was actually the last author that wrote in them. Ah, okay, hang on, hang on, I have to write this down. So John Weems <laughs> was his name, the last one? John Weems, W-E-E-M-S, and he died in 1812. 1812. And I guess, the, when is the last entry? I know we, we're not there yet, because it's, it's just the two. 1812. That is 1812, okay, nice. Yes. And then they were resting in that church up until 1882 when it burned down. Yes, and his great-grandson apparently knew that they were important. And so he ran in and he grabbed them and he took them out of the building before it completely collapsed. And ever since then, it had sat in the basement of this old home that used to belong to uh, someone by the name of Cox, who were also related. But because the bag smelled so bad, like burning tar, 
<laughs> Nobody wanted anything to do with it. They really didn't know what was in it, and they didn't seem to care. So when they found the trunk in the basement of the Historical Society, um, they just left it there. And when I asked for it, they said, sure, take it. Okay. So they let you have the entire thing without, uh, did they ask to, to index it for them or what was the story there? Well, they told me, they said, if you find anything of value or of interest, please let us know. Mm. And so since then, I have sent them the completed genealogy of John Weems so that they can share it with the rest of the people that come in. And I've started to publish them. But they were in my closet up until 2014. <laughs> okay. What did they do in the closet? <laughs> they just sat there for nine years. I didn't take the time to look into them. Right. And even then, when I started translating them, I didn't know what they were. And I was more interested in finding out who John Weems's father was. Right. And I was more interested in my own genealogy. So I didn't take an academic approach to them. I didn't make copies. I didn't, um, didn't, you know, translate it on one side of the page and have the original on the other. Mm. I just translated it for my own self and my own research. And I started at the end because that was in English and I could understand yeah. it. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, but but Scott, Scott mentioned that you your translation was like putting him in, into a modern uh, lingo. Yes, it is. And as I started going through John Weems, who was the last author, he started talking about the journals and how they were in Latin. And he started talking about the entire story. And so then I knew I needed to go back to the very beginning and right. start from scratch. Otherwise, I'd never understand it. Yeah, right, right. But I bet your curiosity was piqued when you recognized Henry Sinclair's name. Or did you have no idea who he was maybe at this point? <laughs> at that time, I had no idea who he was or how I was related. I was sitting around one night watching The Curse of Oak Island. Right. And this was in 2014. Yeah. And the guys were talking about the Templars and Henry Sinclair. Right. I thought, wait a minute. I right. know that name. <laughs> Henry Sinclair. <laughs> That is Henrica Santa Claro. And so I ran to the closet and I pulled out this bag and I dumped it all out and I started looking at the older ones and I could see that it was the journal of Henry Sinclair. Mm. But I still didn't know how he was related. So I had to go back and work on the genealogy as well. And the Weems family in Tennessee had been descended from a man named David Weems who had come from Scotland. And his grandfather had married Catherine Sinclair. Yeah, as, I remember that entry, actually. Where mm -hmm, as a, And as I started going back, I realized that Catherine Sinclair was... A hero to the story. <laughs> she was, yeah, Scott thinks she's a hero to the story because if she had not done what she had done, yeah. um, we'd have lost the story forever. We, we'll get back to that. Okay. But let me ask you about, um, Scott mentioned something about that, uh, although these uh, are not most likely the original journals, even this version of them are gone now, or just fragments remain? Yes, just fragments remain. Um, it's kind of, at the beginning, I didn't know what they were, and I started doing it just for my own research. And then as I found out what they were, 
it scared me. And people kept telling me, oh, they've got to be fake. They've got to be an 18th century or a 19th century forgery. Um, and Scott had said something, well, it's either the greatest story of the world or it's the greatest forgery of the world. Mm, mm. <laughs> and I didn't want to be that person. Mm. I had um, gone to school out in Utah back in 1973. I was at BYU. Mm. And there was a gentleman out there who was bringing forth all these old Mormon documents. And it turned out he had forged them all. Wow. And he even killed two or three people in order to hide his forgery. Jeez. And I didn't want to be identified as one of those people mm. that did something like that. So I threw them away. But but obviously you couldn't have known what treasures you did, actually did throw away. No, I didn't know. And it turns out that when Scott had the pages that were left um, tested for C-14, they were actually tested right around the Civil War. And that tells us that, first of all, what I threw away was not the originals. No. So the question is... If those were copies, where are the originals? Mm. And the reason um, I think they were copied is because Greenville, Tennessee was very active during the Civil War here in the United States. It changed hands five times between the Confederates and the Union. Oh, it was in the middle of the zone, huh? It was, it was in the middle of the war, yeah. and it was right on the border, and there was a lot of activity when the Confederates would come in they would build it in the Sonic Lodge. <laughs> right. And they they burned the lodge down twice. They burned down a local college. They burned down bridges, churches, everything. And all of the men who were descended from John Weems were also Masonic brethren. And I think what they did was they copied it so that they would have a copy in case the originals got burned. Right. And and if anyone would try to make it out of there, uh, either going south to the generals there or to the north, mm -hmm. certainly they would be catched and looked upon as spies and the journals would have been right. taken. And what it turns out that John Weems had 10 children. Four of his sons mm -hmm. went west and four of the others, four of the other sons and the daughters stayed in Greenville. Mm. So I believe that the um, part of the family that went west and south to Missouri may have the originals. Hmm. And so we're working on that now. <laughs> uh, it's out of the question that the originals could have been stored in one of the Masonic lodges in the libraries there. Yeah, because they weren't safe during the war. They were burned down, as you say. Yeah, yeah we don't know. Mm. We have no idea. Um, we just know that Greenville was a terrible place to be. And they lost all the records of the Masonic Hall, except for the original lodge's um, certificate of being. And they only have that because somebody stole it from the Masonic Lodge, took it down the street, and hid it under the floorboards of the local church. Right, right. So, but but the, the fact that um, uh, we even have something now is because you first translated the whole thing, and then when you saw the reactions, that's when you got fed up and, and threw them away? Well, I, yes, and this happened almost right after I had met Scott. And, of course, I didn't know him very well, and he didn't know me. Mm. Um, I didn't know how to, who to trust or you know what to trust. So, And I just didn't want to be that person. So, so, I threw so you had pictures of them all? Uh... 
Or we had taken pictures of some of them. Scott okay. and I had met at the visitors center down in Nauvoo, Illinois, hmm. where I had them hidden at the time. And he took pictures of the middle part of the journals and of the map. So we have some of those. So he saw them uh, with his own eyes then? Oh, yes. Mm. And he saw the map. Mm. And he's convinced the map was original. And that part of it, at least, you know, was original. We know that the journalists themselves that I threw away were most most likely copies. Mm. And they had been copied by John Weems's sons, who were all Freemasons. Mm. Um, one was John Granzer Weems, who was the minister of that church. And the other one, we think, was John Jr., Weems, and he went west to Missouri. He died in Illinois, but his son and his grandson and his brothers continued on to Stella, Missouri. Right. Uh, I didn't even know you had carbon-dated what's left of them. That's such good news. Uh, And before people grab the pitchforks and the torches (laughs) and gang up on you for throwing them away, you have compensated with sweating over the translations for hours upon hours. I kept the translation. I never got rid of the digital copies. Mm. Um, We kept all of the original photos that we had taken. Mm. Um, Uh, Let me say, it's not just the translations themselves, but it's that you have and your team of people have really made an effort to put context to every entry. And that's so useful because most people, I mean, I thought I was well-versed. But if I didn't have that context, I would be lost for half of it. And (laughs) the man in the street, he can actually get what's out of these books now. Mm -hmm. And he can get some sense out of it because of that hard work of explaining every detail, every year, every lineage, every group, every word, custom. The whole context, basically. And that's what I tried to do was so that anybody who didn't know the story story or didn't know anything about the background could learn it as they went. When I first did it, I didn't even know where Orkney was. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. I had to look it up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't blame you. It's not exactly the center of the earth. But (laughs) we in Norway, we have like a fondness for the Orkneys, partly because of the war, Second World War. Mm-hmm. And partly because it used to be our own backyard, you know. It so, used to be part of Norway. Well, yeah, exactly. Henry Sinclair was a Jarl from Norway as well. Right. I, I thought he was, um, you studied his lineage. So he is descended from Norway. I thought he was from the Mediterranean somewhere originally. No, his, um, well, it goes both ways. Hmm. The Sinclairs themselves came from France and they go back into uh, the Merovingian dynasty. Right, right. His mother was Norwegian. Oh. And so by heritage, he should have inherited being the Jarl of the Orkneys, because at that time they still belonged to Norway. Yeah. So he was an Earl of Scotland and he was a Jarl of Norway. Mm. I don't know why exactly they call him Prince, but I suppose in Norway at that time the Jarl or the Earls were pretty much typical of princes. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so, uh, but before we go more into him, just wrap up the diary part, because we will get heat for that. Okay. Uh, The map itself, you said Scott actually thinks that's not a copy, but an original? 
I don't know how you could copy a sheepskin map. Right. <laughs> a good point. You'd have to go out and, you know, kill your own 800-year sheep and skin it and <laughs> take off the hair. And Yeah, but, I mean, have you vetted? Has that been carbon dated? Yes. Um, I had a friend at the University of Iowa who was a researcher there. And the University of Iowa has um, a huge medical campus attached to it. And huge laboratory. So he was able to carbon-14 the map wow. and some of the, some of the original pages before I destroyed them. <laughs> and the map came back to 1,400, give or minus, plus or minus 50 years. Wow, 1,400. Mm-hmm. And they were able to look at it and tell that it was a sheep skin. There was salt particles on the map, which, you know, if you'd taken it out while you were on board ship and it got wet from the sea that's typical there was also sand residue on it so um Hmm. they said they could use carbon in order to write or to draw the maps on it Hmm. but it was very interesting (laughs) absolutely i mean this is just mind-blowing i mean there's three ways we can even if we don't have the originals, there's three ways we can vet these things. First, and you've done a great job there, I have to say, is the internal evidence. Mm-hmm. We can check out everything and to see that either can it be verified or can it be, uh, I don't know the English word, but you, when something is probable. <laughs> so, because it's not all information that actually is possible to verify. Uh, There may be names that are lost, details that are lost, but we can see if it's at least possible. And that... It is dated on the very edge of it. It has a date in Roman numerals. Mm -hmm. I think it's 1398. 1398. Uh, And it has a signature or a sigla of the person who made the map. And when I look at the sigla, I see an A with a Z over the top. Mm. C could be Sinclair, though. It could be Antonio um, Zeno. Ah, Zeno. Of course. Uh, I have that for our notes today, mm-hmm. which reminds me I have to open the document about the Zeno. Okay, but I was thinking, I was talking about everything, not just the map. Everything can be vetted by uh, internal evidence. And, then, and that's what we tried to do. There are some things in there that you just couldn't know. And there are things mm-hmm. that I would never know it. Scott said, um, things that have to do with the numbers. I wouldn't have known that unless I was a Freemason. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Some things you wouldn't have known, like a comet going overhead on a specific day, unless you were there. Right. Because it happened once. You know, there are so many things in it that I just wouldn't know. Having to write... Yeah, like like he mentioned himself, there is the stones and bones uh, that you needed native Indians to confirm. I wouldn't know that. And I wouldn't know that... A Freemason had to write a literate letter of introduction to right. other Freemasons. So there's there's actually one more. Uh, I asked uh, my guest Alvid East, a Norwegian chap who's been researching Norse roads to masonry. I mm-hmm. mentioned to him a couple of examples. Uh, for example, Henry Sinclair uses the word "hid." That's interesting. A forger wouldn't know that, but that word is actually, let's see what he says about it. Um, yeah, so he refers to how the word hird uh, means household originally, okay. uh, how that was used in masonry. It, it, it got a religious, um, but this is a Norwegian, so I can't really simultaneously translate it right now, but it's interesting 
how these words were used by old Norwegian and Danish kings, their entourage, you know, the people around. Right. And often referred to as a brotherhood. <laughs> so Adelstein, for example, used it when he was referring to the Freemasons. So you have small nuggets. And, and this isn't, I mean, even an academic wouldn't know these things. So you, you need specialists to pick up on these things. So that's... that's told me they said um especially on the crew list there were names from families in orkney that mm. you would have had to have been an expert on orkney in order to know that those were men that were loyal to the earl and there's yeah. no way <laughs> no I, I examined those ships cargo lists very interesting stuff and mm -hmm. it struck me already in the 1400s the Orkneys had been so Anglofied that yes. I would expect more Norse names, but already by then there were some here and there, but most of them were were already influenced by the Scots and the English. So, yeah, it's, I mean it's been it's been a few hundred years of that influence. So, <laughs> but it was so interesting to see the different names, uh, different countries they came from, and we'll get back to all that. Okay. I'll just wrap up the evidence thing. I'll say the second thing we can do to vet this, or what you also have been doing, and that's carbon dating the pages and the map with the carbon fourteen. Mm -hmm. And the third thing, which will be the final uh, th that's going to be the shut up level <laughs> and that's when you find archaeological evidence for the different places specific well, I, places i know in volume one it doesn't even get into the part where they actually bring the treasure over and the places mm. they put that and because volume two hasn't been made public yet um mm. and plus the places in volume two were part of the places that they had actually gone and retrieved it in order to help finance the American Revolution at a later time. But there are other places that come out in Volume 3 mm. that have never been retrieved. Mm. And they are marked by what, what I called markers. And out of those eight markers, I have found three. Mm. So as we get into the story and it, the documentary gets done and it gets published, I think people will see that there is some archaeological evidence. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised either. Now let's go into the story then. Um, and uh, by the way, how many volumes do you plan, all in all? Uh, volume 2 is done, but it's not published yet or available to the public. Volume 3 is um, almost done. I'm putting in all the research that mm. I've done separately. Four would be the last couple of authors, but John Weems, the last author, was very prolific. <laughs> <laughs> so it may go into five volumes, but right, right, right now I'm right. planning on four. <laughs> okay, I can't wait, can't wait. Well, it's, you know, the, we just had to have you on because we already had a series about this story. We only didn't have kind of the blueprint, the template, the answer book, which is the journals. It's it, like I said to Scott, it's too good to be true. I mean, it's and that's <laughs> thing I was told. So you will have two reactions to this. You will have those who will say it's too good to be true. Therefore, I completely reject it. And they have and it's a psychological reason. It's not it's nothing to do with evidence. This is psychology. And the other people will be those who said. You know, it's it's so good that I want it to be true. 
<laughs> and I'm I'm on that bandwagon, but of course I never want something to be true on expanse of truth, if you see what I mean. So yes. so even if Scott has that same attitude and you have that same attitude, obviously you'll do your best to vet it and let the actual facts dominate the outcome at least that's my attitude if i was involved in this so uh, and the re- the listeners will be among those two groups too okay. all i have to say to those who say you can't believe it's because it's it's too <laughs> much it's too that it just tells you how starved you've been for well scott has convinced other people uh, steve st Clair and a couple of others that we're working with that there's no, no. way i could have written it yeah, but you know, the provenance is not just from you. I mean, there's a whole uh, line of people. Uh, and we have it. looked at everybody in the Weems line. Mm. Um, Mason Locke Weems, who wrote the story about George Washington and the cherry tree. Mm. He is a uh, relative. We looked at his handwriting. Um, we've looked at <laughs> so many ah, different things. You know, just. Nice. Did anybody along the way write this? And we're still working on it. We're still vetting it. Mm. But anyway, so far it looks good. So let's roll with it. And uh, like I said to you before we started, and really I got this from one of, I I think I'll read it in the post uh, commentary. I'll read some quotes of one of the excellent people who wrote introductions to this book. Mm -hmm. One of them. I forgot his name, but he said that even if they turned out not to be true, it's too good of a story. I mean, even as fiction, this is a great story. <laughs> so it has value. Okay, let's let's get to the juice because, you know, when we had a show with Scott, as soon as people realized what was going on, mm-hmm. he was sitting here with these journals and they, there was a revolt because they wanted more quotes and that's what we're going to give them today. We're going to give them more quotes. We're going to give them context. And if if that doesn't pique their curiosity, they're dead. <laughs> so the next step for people will go to get uh, volume one because that is out, right? Yes. And you have to start at the beginning. It doesn't make any sense if you just jump into the middle. Right. So let's do that. Let's start at the beginning. And it all starts with the famous Henry Sinclair. Before we go into his entries, what can you tell us about Sinclair? When did he live? When did he die? And what was significant about him? Well, he was born, we finally know the date of his birth, and that comes out in one of the first few pages, I think. He was born in 1345, and when he was eight years old, it seems to be a rite of passage, his dad decided to take him with him on a fishing trip to the Western Banks. So, from what I've learned of him, he must have been a very bright boy because he seemed to be very curious. His writing, again, like you said earlier, I put it into a modern context so that it made more sense. A lot of the times when I would um, translate the sentence, just like in some languages, the verbs come last, the subjects come first, sometimes they're backwards. And so I had to Mm. sort of remix it in order for it to make sense. And it didn't help if his mother was Norwegian. No, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> because we, we have different and, grammar. Uh, you know, so. <laughs> the priest was trying to teach him Norwegian um, customs and religion as well as Christian customs and religion. So he had a yeah. mixture of cultures coming at him. But he was very curious. He seemed to be very bright. 
Um, he could write at the age of eight, so... <coughs> and he's one of the few Sinclairs who actually filled up this journal. The others weren't that into writing. No, they were, <laughs> they were just kind of bored with it. They didn't understand it, didn't want to be involved with it, and just kind of passed it on to the next generation. Yeah. But um, Sinclair seemed to care about people. There are several entries where he goes to take care of families who have lost family members. And he, yeah. you know, he shows a concern for the people as well as the things he had to do as an earl. Hmm. Yeah, he did. And was there any famous Sinclairs before him, or is he the first? Um, I don't think there were any Sinclairs that were necessarily famous. Um, he did, you know, as you get into his Norwegian side, it, he's descended from the. Um, sea kings so there's a lot of famous people in ancient history but none that you can really point out as saying you know that they did this or this or this yeah that's a, an important point actually because nowhere in the journals does it reveal how they know about the western route but it's such a matter of fact it's like <laughs> it's like it's no big deal and if you look at the old sagas or preserved especially in Iceland so also in Norway yes. you'll see it's the same there they never made a big deal out of this be the being more land to the west they, you know, that was they, like a given it was accepted and they mm. used to trade with them from the west yeah. and even the Weems family when i trace them back separately they go all the way back into the sagas of Iceland so I can trace that family all the way back. Um, and I wonder if that knowledge didn't come down through the generations. Yeah. They just knew it. It was accepted. It was there. Mm. But what is amazing, kind of, is that he's so late to the party because 1345, that's five years before the Black Plague. Yes. And uh, uh, Norway would never rise after that. Uh, but already at his time... Because in my interview with Eusta, who points to the Norse roots of masonry, he shows that the old and the new religion was maintained simultaneously. <laughs> in England and Scotland, just because there was Vikings who lived there and Christians lived there before them. Mm -hmm. But even after Norway was Christianed, we have evidence of parallel practice. Yes. Uh, and the Sinclair journals confirm this because he refers to what Scott thought was a Celtic god, but I, I think maybe a Norse god, a goddess, in some of the entries. So That could very well be, because he was taught about the Norse customs, and he attended a lot of ceremonies that were Norse customs, yeah. because of his mother. Mm. Okay, let's get into uh, the entries. You've chosen a few entries here, and the first one you'd like us to begin with from 1354, that means he would be nine years old. Mm -hmm. And the reason I included this one was because the last line said that father has been there many times, but this is the first time I've been allowed to accompany him. That tells us right away that his father and probably his grandfather had made that trip six, right. seven or eight times. Uh, what was his father's name? His father's name was William. William Sinclair. Yes. They're all called Henry or William. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, they name them after their fathers and the oldest son. Yeah. It's, it's an old uh, Norse tradition, actually. And he, he says in the same entry, uh, he talks about how they go by Iceland 
to get to the fishing route in the Western Banks. And most people would tell me that you can't go that direction. The the um, the water doesn't flow that direction, and that's not true. That's crazy. During, Who would say that? Oh, a guy from Canada told me that. He said, if you want to go to the um, from Norway to Greenland and then to Nova Scotia, you have to go south first. And, but I did some research and learned that it's during certain times of the period, certain periods of the year, if you stay close to land, you can go from east to west. Yeah, uh, the route is, is no mystery. It's Bergen or uh, Orkneys, then uh, Shetland, mm-hmm. then Faroe Islands, then Iceland. Yes. Then you have to go to this, uh, yeah, uh, to Greenland. To mm-hmm. uh, I read somewhere, counter to popular belief, I think the western part is actually warmer than the eastern. I'm not sure, but there is some weird stuff going on there. Now, from Greenland to the rest, I'm not sure if you can go directly from the south and all the way down to Nova Scotia. Probably you would have to go up the rest, past Nuuk and Monsitok, mm-hmm. and then over to uh, Labrador, I guess you call it. Yes, well, I know also they went by Anacosti Island, and then they came south. Mm. Um, and later in the years, they went all the way down the eastern coast of the Americas. Right. So it was an easy thing to, to island hop from one place to the other. Yeah. yeah even with their technology. And Torhayadal has shown, by the way, the Canadian isn't wrong. They could go south. I mean, Columbus eventually did it, albeit with different ships, but... Torhayadal has shown you can go down do it with a raft. <laughs> you can you can just put some uh, stocks together, uh, sit on it, and you you go all the way around the world. He he went through the Pacific. So mm-hmm. look, th- these are anal uh, criticisms that okay, people will never get it perfectly, but people did what they did. And by the way. The Sinclairs didn't know these details about how to get where. They just followed the tradition. So, yeah. They did. Yeah. Okay, let's let's move on to the next entry. We have a lot to go okay. through. So, the first one was April 18th, 54. Mm-hmm. The next one is a few months later, July 6, 54. You want to read that one? Um, part of it says, I have learned much from my friend Askush and, would ha- and have given him a knife made from whalebone to remember me. He has taught many of his words as I have taught him some Gaelic. And then it tells how they will sail home the same way that they came. Mm. And the reason that's important is because Askuch is a an important figure in the story. When Henry comes back the next time, you know, his friend has aged and grown older, but as he as they approach the natives, one man comes forward with that whalebone knife in his hand mm. and he knows that that's his friend. Right. And it's interesting that Askuch taught him some of his words as he had taught him some Gaelic. It turns out that the natives in that area had customs very similar to Norway and to Orkney as far as um, the winter solstices, the gods and goddesses controlling things. Hmm. And they also knew some Latin. Which indicates they've been in touch with travelers before. I so wish yeah. that um, his father, William, 
father of Henry would have had a diary too, <laughs> because <laughs> I think we could have gleaned just as much info from there. Yes, he died very young, so... He died young. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, did you listen to my end rant after uh, in the show with Scott Walter where I go through different Vikings who's been to the Americas? No, I hadn't g- gotten to that one yet. Okay, you'll, you'll enjoy it. I'm going through <laughs> mainstream evidence. So it's no debate. It's been hundreds, if not thousands of people who's gone to America before Columbus from... Oh, yeah, but from just from the north itself. And so it has to... Uh, and, and one of the first things they do back in those days, yes, practical stuff like exchange fur and food and maybe fishing techniques. But the first thing they go to on the cultural level is the religion, is the, you know, how to commemorate the gods and stuff. So yes. So it's just natural that they would have picked up words and traditions from each other. Very true. Mm. Let's move on then. Next entry is November 22, 1357. Uh, I'll read this one. I love this one. I spent the day at the forge with my father learning about the feast of Wayland. Do we know what Wayland is? Um, I did some research on that, and that was the Norse god of the Smiths. So that's a name. It's not a. Mm-hmm. It's not a land. And um, in the book itself, I think I have a, an artistic picture of him sitting on top of a tower with his bow and arrow or something. Right, right. Wayland, the Norse gods of the Smith. I am clumsy at the forge, but respect those who are very clever. Yeah, Scott has read this before. The Smiths are creating nails and rivets for a boat to travel to the West Bank in the spring. Father Dominic says that Father Ricardos will accompany them with the seven new acolytes. Now, where are they making this boat? Um, I assume that they are in Orkney. Hmm. I'm not certain. It doesn't really refer to whether they are in uh, Scotland, in Fifeshire, or if they're in Orkney. But I would think most likely they're in Orkney because the feast is relating to a Norse god, and I don't know that they would do that in Scotland. They would uh, if you go far enough back. Mm-hmm. But at this point, I doubt it. I thought- Even Orkney is, is impressive. Fairy Islands, yes, sure. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so you, you would have to go to the end. And since Sinclair was ruling it, obviously, uh, they had more independence than mm-hmm. the rest of uh, the British Isles. Well, I thought this entry was important because they were talking about sending a boat in the spring, which would have been 1358. And mm. if you couple that with the Kensington runestone, which is dated 1364, and talks about eight um, Norsemen. Norsemen. Then there's Father Bacardus and the seven acolytes. Yeah. Yeah. Scott made a point out of that. He, he's convinced mm-hmm. these are them. But at this point uh, in 57, so he's born in 45. So at this point, he would be 12 years old, right? About 12 years old. Uh, has he already been to America at this point? Um, he went when he was eight. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. so he's been once. He's been uh, once. And now they're building ships again. Is the Templars or the Masons mentioned at this point in the diaries? Do you remember? He never really refers to them. Well, he does refer to the Templari later. Yeah. 
Um, so he does refer to the Templars, but he never refers to Freemasonry except to call the other brethren members of the craft. Yes. yes. So he never says Freemasonry. He just calls them brethren from the craft. And that's uh, actually more authentication because according to Easter, that's how they refer to themselves at that time. The name Freemason, he has traced that back to two possible origins. Uh, one is actually has to do with Freya, mm-hmm. free coming from Freya. And the other uh, is to have to do with uh, what we call frelse, which is a, in English salvation. But I'll, I'll not uh, talk about that now, but it is consistent with the development from Artelstein and okay. up to the first physical public annunciation of, of them in 1717, I think, when the United Grand Lodge went out. There are some references yeah, I think in the 1500s, Freemasons, etc. But yes, that's those. Yeah, but b- basically, it's a more of a modern word, so we we should really call them Proto Masons. <laughs> yes, you're right. In fact, David Weems, the Earl of Weems, who married Catherine Sinclair, became the Grand Master of the Scottish right. Rite of Freemasonry. So they were very, very involved in Freemasonry later on. Mm, mm. That's uh, kind of a retroactive verification there. Okay, let's move on to the next entry. Um, That would be 65. At this point, Henry is then uh, 20 years? Yes, he's about 20 years old. And he's being um, initiated, it looks like, into what we would call Freemasonry, but they're still calling it the craft. They use a lot of words that I have found um, actually refer to Freemasonry. Mm. And it also shows in the last sentence that Father Dominic was teaching him the old religion as well as the rituals of the craft. So Mm. um, it helped him to appreciate that. And that tells me that there may have been, like you said, you had talked to someone who was um, researching the Norse Aspect, uh, yeah. mm. aspects of masonry. And this may be referring to that as how they actually come together. Hmm. There are some interesting, the Holy Mother, uh, investiture obligation to the Holy Mother. He thinks the first degree of masonry is actually an initiation to Freya, the goddess Freya, which may be the Holy Mother he's referring to here. Uh, it, but he says, I must remember to use the key within the circle of reason. And this is... That has something to do with one of the Freemasonry rites. I'm not certain which... Yeah, yeah, has to. But that's something um, Scott would recognize. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's 65. Uh, Then we jump to six. By the way, he's taken another trip to America between here, hasn't he? Um, No. Oh, so he didn't go with the boats they were preparing back in no, 54. They, you know, it seems as if there were boats that went off to the west every year to go fishing. Right. Um, but as far as his obligation to the covenant that they make together, um, they seem to go every 30 or 40 years, hmm. at least once a generation. At this point, 65, 20 years old, mm-hmm. do we know if any treasures have been gone west? We don't know. No. Um, it's very likely that some could have. Um, I know that 
Scott and I work with another gentleman, Don Rue, who has um, the Cremona document, mm. and it talks about treasures that have gone west as early as 1178. Mm. So, But not according to the Sinclair documents so far. No, the Sinclair mm. documents talk about the Templar treasures um, as separate from anything else you might have heard about. Mm. Okay. Um, so the next entry is June 1st, 68. Actually, the uh, the one from 65 is also June 1st. And then he doesn't write any... Uh, no, he may have write actually in between. But yeah. then June 1st, 68 is exactly three years later. He's probably around 23 here. Three years mm-hmm. And I'll actually read it. It's a good one. This day, while we supped with the king's court, we listened to a seaman who has returned from the western lands and tells us of the abundance of land and game past the ice banks of Groenland. It makes me anxious to travel to the western banks again, as I did when I was a child. He tells of the journey and how he was forced to stay for many years before he was allowed to return. He makes me wonder of the 30 men who had left Norway in the spring of 58. I pray that they are well and they will return soon. Now, do we know who was forcing this chap to remain behind in Vinland? Um, The stories that I've read about that... um he was being forced to stay by the Indians, by the natives. Mm. And it wasn't so much that, you know, they locked him up in chains and, you know, what else, but they wanted to learn what he knew. Mm. And so he was forced to stay behind so that they could learn more from him. Right. Because, I mean, it would be irresponsible. They should boot the chief if he didn't try to get intel out of, you know, weird people coming over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would be natural. Well, and I'm certain there were other seamen that had come and been lost and had ended up yeah. on the shores as well. Yeah, so so they even had a context, even more reason to get more details and updates. <laughs> but um, uh, at this point, uh, he's supping with uh, the king. That would be King Magnus, I think I discussed with uh, yes. him. And um, so they are not in Norway at that point to go to America. They're just in Norway for other reasons. I think they're in Norway for the marriage of one of the king's daughters. Mm, okay. I'd have to look to be certain. Mm. And then he just reminisces about uh, the Western Banks. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is in 68, by the way. And um, at this point, this is after the Black Plague. So in Norway itself, there would just be fragmented knowledge i mean ordinary people in the street would probably not be too aware of the western banks in iceland i think they would yes maybe some advanced fishers in norway but certainly the courts would have preserved that info mm-hmm. so when they when they get this seaman who has been there and they listen to him but of course this is after the black plague and you would have to wait a few hundred years until Norwegians again felt the need to <laughs> to migrate, because, right? Because yeah. now we had plenty of land. You could just go and annex any farm, huge farm. People were dead, right? Yes. So there would be no reason to invade or, or immigrate to, mm-hmm. to America at this point, which it would be in the Viking times, because that's why the Vikings expanded uh, to begin with. Yes. They didn't have enough food and, and stuff. So, But at this point, they wouldn't. And therefore, I think the curiosity about this land would just be academic at this point. Mm-hmm. But he seemed to have a special affinity towards it because his father and his grandfather had been there. 
Indeed. He seems to be nostalgic about it. Mm-hmm. Personal vested uh, interest. So July 26, five days later, you want to read that entry? I have spoken with the brethren regarding my concerns for the man who had traveled to the Western Banks in the spring of 1358. No word has been received from them, but Brother Cameron has said that none is expected. They were instructed to find suitable land for settlement and that more would follow. He acknowledged that they were men of the craft and included monks with herbal knowledge. Because of the political unrest in Scotland, no additional brethren have been sent. It might be several years before another journey can be planned. So apparently there's a lot going on in Scotland that's preventing them from you know, doing what they want. Mm. They have other obligations to the king and to the people that they can't really make a journey. And they didn't expect to hear anything from these people. Mm. So, But the fact that they were instructed to find suitable land for settlement jives with the Kensington runestone beliefs that Scott has because mm. he thinks that that is a a land settlement, land claim. And I totally agree because at this point, normal Norsemen have no need to emigrate. Right. But who has a need to emigrate are the initiates, especially those of the Templar lineage, right? Because they have had, uh, people probably don't know this, I don't even know if you know this, but prior to this, for hundreds of years, these big orders had this wet dream about a Templar (laughs) state, about an order state. The Teutonic order actually managed to do it, (laughs) and the Maltese order managed to do it, obviously Malta. Mm. So the order of the Knights of Christ didn't, but they wanted it. So this was a thing to have a land, uh, probably to be independent of the Vatican, who also has it, (laughs) you know, the Vatican state, it's a state. And I would think that the men who went with them every time they went on a journey to the Western Banks, mm -hmm. that some of them were Templars. And he acknowledges here that of the 30 men that went, they were men of the craft. Yeah. So um, the Templars have already been disbanded, but as we learn later, Sinclair and Weems have been protecting them in the caves where they're living in Scotland. And you know what? The unavoidable conclusion from this is that if the Norse... And by the way, people, if you haven't heard the show about the Norse origin of masonry, check it out so it makes sense what I'm saying now. But from all it looks like, you had this somewhat... Not not independent. It was a part of Christianity at this point. But you had a, a, a god cult that had Norse roots that was, let's put it like this, it was flooded with independent-minded people. I mean, Scots, hello, <laughs> uh, Norwegians. At this point, we were Christian by the Celtic Church. Uh, the Catholics were putting out bulls against us to come into the fold. Yes. Um, we had... Um, uh, this autonomous tradition that they reco- call the craft. Now, if Templars fled to Scotland, what would be the natural vehicle for them to seek refuge in? Obviously, the brothers of the craft. Absolutely. And there were several Templar um, monasteries close by to where um, both Sinclair and Weems came from. And they were followers of Robert the Bruce. And so they would have assisted the Templars in any way that they could. And that's what a couple of the next few entries I chose talk about. Them helping the Templari, who are still there. 
Ah, let's see. Uh, so then we just read, uh, was it July 26 we just read? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the next one will be April 18, 1373. The brethren of the craft have met this day to discuss the needs of the Templari who have requested our assistance in Midlothian. We meet again next seventh day to conclude this matter. Uh, so Midlothian, that sounds very Scottish. Do we know where um, it is? That is, it's like a county or a province. Oh, okay. And that is where um, the Rosden Castle area is. They're in Midlothian. Mm. There was a time when the English border actually went up to the Firth of Forth, but it was moved south later. Mm. And so at one time, their castles were either on the border with England or they were 30 or 40 miles north. <laughs> right, right, right. So they were very close. Yeah. The next one. Oh, by the way, people, we have... We have just handpicked a few examples. So this isn't exhaustive entries. So some entries are more trivial. We are obviously picking those who will entice your endorphins. So <laughs> <laughs> not all of them are as interesting as those we're reading, but uh, many of them are, and it also depends on the context. The next one is 2nd of February, 1383. How old is he at this point? Um, let's see, if he was born in 45, he would be... 30-something? 38? Yeah, 30-something. At this point, has he been back in America? No. So still just when he was eight? And right. He's, they're still recovering from English invasions and Scottish you know, intrigues and things like this. But yeah. the one thing that's interesting is the papal bull that did away with Templars and had them arrested on the 13th of February, Friday the 13th, mm. um, was never read in Scotland. That's right. Officially, they weren't uh, disbanded. They were, right. Officially, they were never disbanded in Scotland. And that's why so many of them went to Scotland. Hmm. And uh, on the 2nd of February in 1383, it talks about the Templari and how they are at the Cliffs of Weems. Hmm. And I did a lot of research on Weems and the Weems Castle. And they're right on the border. They're right on the sea. And there are numerous caves that they could have hidden in, you know, and some have stairways that go up through the rocks to the castle on top of the cliffs. Uh, Scott actually visited there last year, hmm. and he went into one of the caves, and he, asked, he told me, he asked himself, could a group of Templars live here? And he says, hell yeah, <laughs> it's so <laughs> big. <laughs> I mean, right after the ban, when was the ban again? 13... 13... 1314. So this is like generation, uh, a couple of generations after. This is 1384. I mean, by that point, why wouldn't they build uh, houses? I, I think what they may have done in the caves is hide stuff mm -hmm. and uh, maybe also have uh, some religious practices in those caves. That and some of those caves have baptismal founts. Right. Um, we find over the years they marry, they have children. So they still think of themselves as Templars, and they still yeah. um, teach the techniques and the thoughts and everything of the Templars, but they've changed in a way. Yeah. 
declined uh, for one but uh, I think these guys are the, we know Templars went to the Teutonic Order we know they went to the Maltese yes. Order we know they went to the Order of Christ mm-hmm. but I've only researched their part in the Order of Christ and they lost control of that pretty fast by the time uh, Columbus was in it it was you know all identity as a Templar thing was gone it was just uh a group of bastards. So I, I don't think they feared. And remember, folks, from our show with Timothy Hogan, Templars weren't one thing. It was a huge organization. Everything from peasants to bankers, Absolutely. soldiers to... So I think these people who went to Scotland were kind of the heart of the Templarism. These are the spiritual part of Templarism. These are... I actually have written two other books called Templars. Who were they and where, where did they go? Hmm. And the reason I did that is I wanted to find out if one particular man had been a Templar. <laughs> and in order to do that, I had to research and pull together all the list of Templars mm. from every country. And so I have like 1,500 pages of names of different Templars. Wow. And people talk about, oh, they burned them at the stake and they did this and that. that. They only burned 54 people. Mm. There were tens of thousands of Templars, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, everywhere from bankers to um, people who made their robes to people who fed them, took care of the livestock, mm-hmm. as well as the knights. And mm-hmm. some of these, you know, had come to Scotland, maybe with the idea of going to the Americas. Yeah. The thing about the Weems family is because they were on the coast, they had their own shipping fleet. They had all these caves. They were known as smugglers. Mm. Why couldn't they smuggle people? Mm. Mm. And and these caves, by the way, are famous. This isn't like something you guys have uh, dreamt up. Uh, it's been rumors, no, actually, been for r- centuries. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they did hide things in the caves as well. Uh, we don't know exactly what. Well, we know where the Vikings did because we found, haven't we found runes or some kind of inscriptions proving? Yes. There are all sorts of runes in the caves, including yeah. some that could be considered Templar. Um, there's a lot of Viking runes in the caves. Um, hey, has they- Scott found the hooked X there? <laughs> that would be great, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> He's found the hooked X on the crew list. Really? Wow. Yeah, but, the first but- couple of this that I sent him, there wasn't an X on the page anywhere. And then he was on an airplane one day going somewhere, two more pages, and they had hooked X's on them. And he said he wow. almost... Flew the plane himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I mean, the fact that uh, Columbus used it by then, and I forgot yeah. to say, yeah, but I forgot to say this to, to Scott. I'll say it now. Like I said to Scott, he was probably not an initiate. He's someone who managed to reconstruct and glean info, partly from probably his membership in the Order of Christ, partly by weaseling into the Sinclair family by marriage. But yes. Whatever he he did get info about, he obviously knew that the hooked X was a Templar thing. But the interesting thing is he just used it for decoration. Mm. No inkling about its meaning. So to him, it was a decor. It was something he used to personally fancy himself with. I think yes. it was his signature or something. Mm-hmm. Right? I think you're right. And there yeah. were a lot of people did, that did that. We have some of the signatures of the Weems family. And Earl David Weems, who was the Grand Master of the Scottish Rite of Scotland at one time, also used a hooked X. Hmm. 
So Columbus could have picked it up from from these people doing anyone. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but about the hooked axe in the caves, most of those caves I think are sealed up. So uh, some of them have some? been sealed up because they're dangerous. Um, yeah. But they do give tours of them every once in a while, and they used to be called different names than what they're called now. There used to be a queen's cave, a king's cave, the thieves' cave. Wow. <laughs> Um, all of those names have disappeared. <laughs> oh, typical. Well, I'm, I'm sure Scott didn't examine every K, right? That's too much no. for one person anyway. They wouldn't allow him in every one of them. No. Hmm. Well, Scott, if you're listening, you have uh, further trips to do. <laughs> o- okay, let's move on to the next entry. Um, let's see, where were we? Um, um, the 18th of April, 1385. Yeah, that's the next one. So I can read that. The brethren of the craft have met this day to discuss the needs of the Templari. No, no, I did read that. Yes. So the next one would be the 2nd of February, 1383. You can read that one. Uh, let's see. I have met with the Templari near the Cliffs of Weems and have delivered provisions to them for the rest of the winter. They seem in good spirits and make good use of their time. Okay, this seems like they're actually not just hanging there but you know there are alternative explanations yes they could live there but it's kind of retarded to live there for 50 years when there's houses around <laughs> so either they are meeting there and then yes it would be good to have provisions for the rest of the winter of course because everybody needed pro- uh, I know that mm-hmm. Sinclair was giving his people provisions to uh, survive the winter so this would be provisions from the craft to the Templari, for example. So it could just be personally that, okay, all the men come and gather, mm-hmm. take back to your family. But there could also be in terms of sailing, that they use this as, as their harbor, as their headquarters or something. And in terms of going west, for example, could be doesn't say anything about it, but why not? You're, you're right. And I kind of got the feeling that... Um, they did go out of the caves and work in that area, you know, helping other families and doing farming activities. Mm. The Weems were known for coal mining, so some of them might have been miners. Ah. Um, it just seems like maybe they were still in hiding or they felt that they were in hiding and they were using this as their headquarters. Right. And being right there in the bay, they could, you know, come and go as they chose. Miners, oh my God! Now we're we, we, we're not at Oak Island yet, but we'll get there later. So, okay, next one is thirteen eighty-five, and by now he should be forty years old. Yes. So now he's a full-grown, mature man. Eighteenth of April. Mm-hmm. So he mentioned some people here. Uh, and by the way, Halliburton and Stuart. Stuart, I think, are associated with Masons or Templars. Yes, and they're all, um, they were all supporters of Robert the Bruce. And these are all real people. I've been able to find all of them in the histories. Mm. And they were all, it looks like they were all Freemasons or members of the craft. Hmm. And I think this one was important because they talked about three children have been born this past year and that some of their youth had taken the vows of the Templari. Mm. So it shows that the Templars had kind of changed. They'd married. And, and, and continued. 
And uh, they also talk about trading with swords that they have manufactured. So mm -hmm. they are keeping their craft and their uh, knowledge, uh, keeping that alive. Two years later, 9th of September 1387, he's now 42 years old, a daughter Marjorie was born this morn. She's a screaming child and red of face. Her mother does fine and Elizabeth helps to care for her. This, this, is, this seems trivial. Why did you pick this one? Um, just to show that we had exact dates for when some of his children were born. Right, right. And Elizabeth is his um, daughter from his first wife who died in childbirth. Oh, I see. It's just a family detail that comes in handy. <laughs> so is this mother another one than the Norwegian one? No, it was his mother that was Norwegian, right? Not his wife. Right. Um, he married Elizabeth Halliburton. Mm. Yeah, I suppose you're the one to ask about all the names and dates, <laughs> being into genealogy. <laughs> If I can remember. Okay. Some days Scott knows it better than I do. What was that? <laughs> Sometimes I think Scott knows the journals better than I do. The journals, but if there's names and dates, I'll go yes, to you. Yes, those went to yeah, me. Yeah. 31st of May, 1390. He's now 50 years old. Mm -hmm. he, he still hasn't been to America yet, has he? No. Only the uh, except, except as a child. Okay, and then he says, We have heard that an Italian ship has wrecked off the shores of Balta Island in the Shetlands and have been put upon by the people from the mainland who hope to subdue them and loot their stores. The shores there are rocky and hazardous and are the resting place of many wrecks. I will take three of my ships in the morrow and rescue them. Perhaps they will have news of Paris and Venice. Now, this has to be the Zeno brothers, right? Yes. It, when he gets there, he finds out that they are the Zenos and they're able to communicate because they all speak Latin. Hmm which they did uh, back in the day. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll read, folks, I'll read the Sino narrative or some of it after this interview in the post note, post commentary. Mm -hmm. So we just fill that little gap in and then you'll see why this is so significant. Well, and it's also significant because the narrative, um, people say, well, there's only one real piece of information that we have about the Xenos, and that's the iNavigatory. And I got a copy of that digitally, digitally from a uh, Chicago museum and went through it very... Um, I went through it very... Meticulously. Meticulously. I lost the word there. And tried to decide what it actually told me. And I say they were not brothers. Mm. Nicole. Zeno was Antonio's father. Yeah, the only reason we save Zeno brothers is because that's been attached to them afterwards, but on fragile grounds, obviously. And doesn't the, actually the journals say specifically that it's father and son? It does. Um, in further entries, he refers to him as his son. He does have a brother named Carlo who is in charge of the Italian Navy. So um, That's right. But but he's back in Italy. We know that at this point. Right. Mm. Mm -hmm. they, they were brothers there, but these two are father and son. So I guess yeah. Uh, the next one is connected to this, 15th of August, 1390. Here he says he have knighted Captain Nicola Sino uh, and given him command of my fleet. So either he's knighted in terms of his actual powers tonight as the Earl or Jarl of Orkney and of Scotland, but 
he could also be talking about the Templar knighting. That's true, and I hadn't really thought of that. I assumed that he had knighted Captain Zeno with the authority from the Scottish king, but it might Which, be entirely... Yeah, it could be, because uh, he was obviously heading the fleet of Sinclair at, uh, when he went back. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it could be, but could. he mentions the Templaris, too, doesn't he? He says... Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he says, to my surprise, I discover he and his brother and son are familiar with the vows of the brethren as their grandfather was also a Templar. That makes sense. Yep. This pleases me as he understands my plan to visit the Western lands. So whether he, they were knighted as both Templars and as Scottish or Orkney officials, hard to tell, but uh, obviously the Templar thing has been a subject between them by now. Yes. And no wonder, I think also that, of course, they would be they would be thankful to Sinclair for coming and saving them from the British <laughs> Viking Orkney people, but uh, actually Shetland, Shetland people. I'm sure that was very difficult. Yeah, yeah. But also, as soon as they recognize that they are both... And, and of course, at this point, in 1390, the Templars would still be a huge conversational topic. Mm-hmm. Because it was the big thing that had happened that century. Except for the plague, of course. Yes, it was. And the grandfathers would have still have remembered. Yeah, yeah. And many people uh, said the plague was uh, actually punishment for <laughs> killing off the Templars. <laughs> well, I'm sure that's part of the reason they took Templars with them every journey that they made. <laughs> yeah. Get them out yeah, to bless it, and and they knew the 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 route anyway. Mm-hmm. So next one is thirty one of August thirteen ninety four. Four years later, uh, seems trivial, but he mentions Antonio again, and he talks about um, making a journey in the spring. And everything I've ever read or heard has said that they came in thirteen ninety eight. Well, this is thirteen ninety five. So mm. he made an extra journey in there that nobody knew about. Yeah, he talks about the plans for the journey. Uh, did we see other entries confirming that happened? Uh, yes. The plans may shift. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, throughout the next you know, couple of pages of the journals, he talks about all of the plans they've made and I think the names and number of the ships and where their route will be. Right, right. Okay. And they did it. Um, the next entry that I pulled out was the 15th of April 1395 mm. and here they talk about traveling to Greenland to exchange bishops and that's well, the- you know we have to read the entire entry it's such a good one you want to do it sure um, my wife has recovered she probably just had another baby and I make plans to travel to Greenland to exchange bishops my lady assures me she will be well with her ladies and the children to keep her busy so he's already planning and making certain that his family is taken care of and they're exchanging bishops because that's a typical thing that they do um, in the yeah. church. Yeah. And to continue, Captain Niccolo's son arrived three days ago and has brought with him two galleys from Venice and many men. The galleys are appointed with the newest in canon weaponry and are on an amazement to behold. Okay, it's- okay, we have to pause there. Obviously, uh, the, this is going to be the big trip. Because uh, they go back and get... So many people tell me, you're wrong, you're wrong. It was They were brothers. But if you go through the, um, the I Navigatory, mm-hmm. it very specifically say that Captain Niccolo had a brother named Carlo and a son named Antonio. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah, but my point is, the, at this point, the trip they are, are preparing for now is going to be the big one. Because the captain comes with, it's, it's not just people from Orkney, they, they come all the way from Venice. All the way from Venice. And he brings two galleys, which is um, apparently back then you would come up in the spring and go back in the fall. So they only could exchange things with Venice in the spring and the fall. Mm. Yeah. And uh, galleys are huge ships and cannons and everything. So here it's not just going over to fish this time it's to to take some valuables over and or not only valuables they need manpower too manpower yeah. and they're doing a lot of um scouting to find out where they want to bring things right and 1395 at this point he is uh, 55 years old mhm and he at this point he has been twice to the west no just once just still just once okay so just once 1395 is his second trip and the big and one and 1398 is the third trip so henry decides for some reason maybe not him alone but he and his co-conspirators <laughs> decides to move valuables over to the west now what's going on in 1395 that makes that uh time of period where that would be necessary, where Scotland being overrun by the Vatican or something? Uh, the English. And there was a, um, oh, a partnership between Scotland and France and uh, England that they were very involved in. So it was still very political. And they were still recovering from the Black Death. Hmm. So... Um, I think that they were intent on moving things because they knew that the English would eventually get a hold in Scotland and they were afraid that mm. all that they had would be confiscated and they wouldn't ever bring to fruition the dream of having a free Templar state. Mm. And that's kind of a theme that goes throughout the journal. Yeah. They have to get to the Americas and take the Templars there because they want to create that free Templar state. And at this point we know even from the journals, that there are Templari there. We know even that. If, even if Henry didn't go himself. Even if he didn't go. And I think that they went when he was a child. There were Templars on board. Um, there was another group that left in 1358. I'm sure there were other trips that were made as well. Uh, we have some information uh, hang on, hang on. Let's just get order on this. Uh, 1358 was the second one we know from the journals. Right. Uh, the one when it was eight was in 1354. 54. Mm-hmm. 53, 54. So that we know. And then we know also from the Cremona document. Uh, there were others in the 1360s. From the Cremona document, 1360s. Yes, and they have recently gotten more information and more um, documents that show that there was another Templar voyage in the 1360s um, to kind of the same area, but more up towards um, Halifax. Uh, I mean, no, that's not just this one. That's a couple of years no, off. It, yeah, totally, totally separate. <laughs> okay, but but surely it has to be involving Sinclair somehow. It does. And Scott called me last night very excited about something he'd found in these new documents mm. where they called an island the very same thing that Henry Sinclair called it. Right. And it 
corroborated what was said in the journals. And he's found several things that have um, hooked the two together. Right. Excellent. So happy we have Scott on the job of, of <laughs> giving context to all this. Uh, so, so then we have these three dates at least, and probably dates prior to th- 1354 too, but... Um, that wouldn't involve Henry. Now, what's interesting in this entry is also that if he sends the Sinos down to get mm-hmm. manpower and weaponry and all that stuff, then there must be a deep tr- trust in each other because Venice is pretty close to the Vatican. It is. And there have always been rumors that even though the majority of the Templar gold had been put on the 14 ships that left the harbor, there was also a, um, I want to say a cart train, like a wagon train of gold that went over the mountains. Mm. So not all of the Templar treasury went in the same direction. And it's very possible that Antonio's crew brought some with them. Right. You know, the only reason they could use to let the guardians of the scattered pockets of uh, caches of this treasure give it up mm-hmm. the only reason it wouldn't ha- help with the authority I'm the grandmaster of this or that no that wouldn't work no it's a hundred years ago the original people are dead screw you <laughs> the only thing that would work is if they all went around and said hey folks we're finally going to do it we're going to establish a Templar state I hear you we need all the, we need all the good stuff the treasures, we need as many men we can have, we need weapons, come on, come on. It was like a common project, fulfilling the dream of the originals. Mm. Otherwise, what will naturally happen psychologically is that, you know, 10 generations after the fact, the guardians will look at, you know, I am having the right to decide what's going on with this stuff. You know what I mean? And that's what's so interesting about the journals is that it passes from generation to generation, 10, 12 generations down the tubes, and they are still um, protecting the covenant, still protecting the treasure. And they still have the same dream. Mm. They do. And he confirms in this entry, too, that uh, both Captain Niccolo and his son are members of the craft. Of course, at this point, they may have become members through him. We don't know that. Very true. And it could be um, any of the other organizations that broke off from the Templars. That's right. And they may loosely be referring to everything as the craft. Yes. It may also be the other way around that the craft is actually the origins of the Templars. That the Templars not just sought refuge among Masons, proto-Masons, but because they came from there somehow. Mm-hmm. That may also be. Uh, and he says many of the men in Antonio's crew are also members of the craft and descendants of the Templars. Mm-hmm. Skilled men and I welcome them. So we see in order for him to send them down there for something so important, there has to be trust. And the only thing that could make him, because they were from different countries, uh, even different religious versions of Christianity, the only thing that could bind them together more is that they have some uh, something being closer, namely fraternity. Well, and what's interesting is if you look at the crew list, there is one person from Switzerland. Ah. And... We all know that the Swiss Guard are descendants of the Templars. Right. Um, and, that, you know, when they left Italy and they went north, uh, Switzerland was created and, you know, all the other things happened. But the man who was on the crew list was a Jew. Mm. Well, legend tells us the only people 
who can handle the Ark and the Covenant have to be Jewish. <laughs> That's right. And he was a Templar. <laughs> That's right. But, you know, the Swiss God, aren't they in the Vatican? Um, they are. But if you look at the history of Switzerland and you look at how close it is to um, Italy mm. in the north, when they went over the mountains, it's suspected that they had a train of gold with them, and they went to Switzerland because it was, you know, fairly on the border. It wasn't really organized well. Um, there was no central government, so to speak. They were all provincial. Mm. And I haven't found any proof yet. I'm still tracking down the names of the Templars who... Uh, created Switzerland. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, but I think that there's a, there's a hook in there somewhere. I just haven't found it. Mm. Well, the flag is suspicious in itself, so... That's true. But yes, <laughs> the Swiss Guard are now in the Vatican. Right. Um, so, um, I, I guess that concludes book one. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll take a short break and then we'll attack book two. Oh. But I have a, a couple of questions here. And, and by the way, the book, folks, is full of helpful information, not just beautiful pictures illustrating everything, but also like timelines and yeah, uh, yeah just a, a whole lot of hard work. This is what you're spending most of your work on to, to substantiate it. But then there's uh, something you say here. Two pages above was submitted by Dr. John Wade. So, have they found some additional pages, or um, these were some of the pages that uh, we had photocopies of? Mm. And he was trying to figure out if they were original, or if they had been copied, or if they were written by a man or a woman, an adult or a child. And this is how we know they were copied, right? Is because he he had found that. They couldn't possibly have been original, that they had been um, copied by somebody who didn't know what they were doing, which is pretty much... So, is someone in around 18... Uh, well, after the death of... Uh, 18, after 1812, at least, it must have happened. After 1812, but yeah. before the Civil War. And the Civil War began when? 1861. So, most likely, these were translated between 1812 and 1861. Mm -hmm. And I've looked at a lot of the academics there in Greenville, and um, there are several, there is a college there, the Cus there's a college in Tusculum, and Andrew, jo Andrew Johnson, one of the presidents, came from Greenville. So if the Masons in Greenville knew about the journals, so did Andrew Johnson, and so did um, Albert Pike, mm. who are other uh, big names in Freemasonry. And so the academics there, there were some that taught, oh, Greek and Latin and things like that up at the college, but the college only had like four professors. You know, this is the 1860s. It wasn't mm. like today. Mm. So there were really no experts to translate it. They did the best they could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I probably didn't have in mind that someone would be reading it to find out if it's genuine. I mean, that wasn't a, a intention with them at all. It was just to no. conserve. You would update the language if you're going to conserve the... Preserve. And some of the, the documents, the, the older ones were written in Latin. Hmm. The ones in the middle section, which will be in volume three of the journals, um, was in Old English. Hmm. And that was a terrible time trying to translate that. <laughs> And then the last four or five books were written in fairly modern English. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, and, and maybe those who did it didn't even understand that this had to do with treasures and stuff. Maybe it was just a family tradition they wanted to preserve or it could very well be. something. Yeah. Because most all of his grandsons were Masons. Mm. And it was probably them that decided to copy it and make certain that they're you know, remained copies. Mm. And some of them might have gone to Missouri with some of the family. That's something I'm working on. And that part of the family also had ties to the Knights of the Golden Circle. Right, so. right. Those are infamous. <laughs> and and we know they had lots of treasures and yes. buried here and there. Maybe, maybe even Templar treasures. I see here that as a child, he was, uh, Henry was... Um, taught his duties by Sir Thomas Stewart. Um, As to the marriage bed, yes. Oh. I think that's what Oh, I thought it was the duties of being an earl. <laughs> that, could, that could be as well. Um, he was, I remember one journal entry was that he was taught about his duties for the wedding night. Right, and then there, right. there were several about him being taught how to be an earl after his father died. Right, right, right. Okay, well, but he he certainly taught a lot about uh, paganism. For example, he says here, this is an entry from 1358. He says, Father has left for London where he will sail for Europe. He promises to be home by the end of the year. Today is the Roman festival for Ceres and Demeter. Father Dominic celebrates the old religions and teaches me there must be a balance between the old and the new. This is very reminiscent of how they did it at least a few hundred years earlier. Mm. It's just great that they're still doing yeah. it. But we know very little of the religious practice, uh, you know, after, I would say, from the 1100s or something. So it's it's so great that there were pockets in Europe where you wouldn't be burned for that. Because now we're at the height of the medieval ages and the Catholics have complete control in most of Europe. But it's some kind of spiritual haven up here. Well, Scotland was definitely um, a country on its own. They didn't follow the English as like they should have, and they didn't follow the Vatican. Mm. So they kind of did their own thing. Mm. Uh, and we see that even in the emanation of the Anglican Church. They never went under the Catholics. Well, not for long, at not, least. Not for long. So that independence uh, has been there all, all the time also with the Celtic Church, but we'll not go into that mm-hmm. today. Okay, Diana, I think we did a okay job of going through book one. Should we take a break and then sure. uh, blow the minds for book two? <laughs> Great. I can afford that. Yeah, me too. All of our files are free. And will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. <laughs> 